Welcome to another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf. This is Gary. I wanted to look at a J.P. Moreland book. Boy, I tell you, I love everything Moreland puts out. Sometimes it makes my head hurt a little bit to read it. It makes me think a lot, but that's okay. He has a book called Scientism and Secularism, and I've already done one podcast, and here's a second one. I want to dip into chapters four and five. Four is very short, and if it makes sense to you, and it, it took a bit, but it makes sense, then you can refute scientism right and left. So let's start in. He'll define scientism as we progress through this chapter, but he starts with a story. I am a sucker for good stories, and this is really a good story. <clears throat> uh, Moreland said he was invited to speak at a at an evangelistic event, and somebody said, by the way, I'm going to be bringing my boss there, and he's an engineer, and he's finishing a belated PhD, and apparently he liked to really rip on Christians for being stupid. So um, Marlon says he got introduced to the guy, and he said, man, wasted no time. I understand you're a philosopher and theologian, he said. I used to be interested in those things when I was a teenager, but I've outgrown those interests. I know now that the only sort of knowledge or reality is that which can be and has been quantified and tested in the lab. If you can measure it and test it scientifically, you can know it. If not, the topic is nothing but private opinion and idle speculation. Wow. Well, he waits. He makes you wait till the end of the chapter to explain what Moreland said to him. But he points out then, what's this guy claiming? It's scientism, the idea that true knowledge is only found within science. Okay, so in other words, if you can't put it in a test tube, if you can't weigh it, if you can't measure it, then it's just opinion. And you can ignore it. Sounds pretty reasonable for people that, that buy into the power of science, doesn't it? But uh, J.P. Moreland says that view uh, that true knowledge is found only within science is self-refuting. It's incoherent. It, it defeats itself. So he has to define the term. And I, I really hope you get this because it is found everywhere. People make all sorts of claims against Christians and they don't realize that they're often using self-refuting statements. So what is a self-refuting statement? Well, the claim makes some kind of requirement of acceptability for an assertion. You know, in other words, it has to be this way. And the claim places itself in subjection to the requirement. Then the claim falls short of satisfying the requirement of acceptability that that assertion stipulates. Now, at this point, you're probably going, what? And I did too. So I think it's really hard to define what a self-refuting statement looks like. It's a lot easier just to give you some examples. So I hope you didn't uh, shut off this podcast and go do something else. Hang in there. <laughs> we'll make it a little simpler here. Thank you, JP, for helping us out understand this. So when the statement talks about itself, but it doesn't satisfy its own standards of acceptability, it's self-refuting. So here come examples, and this will be a lot easier, I think. If somebody says to you, all sentences are exactly three words long. Okay, so they've made an assertion, right? There's a statement, and that statement sets up a standard. In this case, how can you identify sentences? Well, they have to be exactly three words long. But then you realize this person claims that what he or she just wrote was a sentence, but it's not three words long. So it fails to satisfy its own standards. That's self-refuting. Here's another one. Somebody comes up to you, and uh, you ask them something, and the person shakes his head and says, 
I cannot utter a word of English. And he speaks it or she speaks it in English. That's self-refuting. The person says, here's my claim. I can't utter a word of English. And then you look at the, the claim, the, uh, uh, the assertion. It doesn't satisfy its own standards of acceptability. How about this one? I do not exist. Well, wait a minute. If you don't exist, you couldn't make that statement, right? That's self-defeating. Here's another one. This sentence is false. But the sentence is written as if it's true. Truths can only be verified by the five senses or by science. But that's a true statement that can't be verified by the five senses or by, by science. So, there we go. That's what they look like. Self-refuting statements don't just happen to be false. They're necessarily false. You can't fix them. So he says, let's go back. This is strong scientism. What does it say? Only what's testable by science can be true. Well, it's a philosophical statement about science. That by itself can't be tested by science. So let me read it one more time. What is the claim of scientism? Only what's testable by science can be true. Well, that statement cannot be tested by science. You can't put that in a test tube. You can't weigh that. You can't take pictures of that. So it's not only false, but it's self-refuting. Isn't that amazing? And he says nothing will change that. It's just, by definition, that's self-refuting. Toward the end of the chapter, it's a short chapter, uh, JP says, uh, that's amazingly ironic. Here's somebody that comes down strongly on the side of science, but makes a claim that's not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical assertion. Isn't that amazing? Well, what's the rest of his story? Remember, the guy is basically putting him down and says, oh, I used to you know, be interested in what you're um, doing as a teacher, but that was when I was a teenager. I've outgrown it. You know, the only thing you can know are things that are quantified and tested in the lab. So here's how JP ended that story. He said, I let the gentleman speak for two or three minutes, and then I interrupted him with an expression of puzzlement. Sir, I said, You've made 30 to 40 assertions in the last few minutes, and as far as I can tell, not one of them can be quantified, measured, and scientifically tested in the lab. But this puts me in an awkward position by your own standards. All you've been doing in our conversation is spouting your private opinions and idle speculation. Now, based on this, I'm wondering why I or anyone else ought to give you the time of day or think a single thing you said is knowably true. <laughs> And you can imagine, J.P. says the gentleman's face turned red, and he quickly changed the subject. Yeah, because, again, what's happening here? And you'll see that everything like, let's take tolerance as an example. J.P. doesn't talk about this, but people have a new definition of tolerance that says you must agree with everybody. And if you don't agree with them, then they come after you. And so if you take tolerance, tolerance is fine if you agree with them. But they will not tolerate you, those who promote this new kind of tolerance. So tolerance is a one-way street, pretty ironic. They claim to be tolerant people, but they're not tolerant of anybody who doesn't buy into their definition of tolerance. Okay, so these are um, interesting self-refuting statements. Let's go to his uh, next chapter because this is crucial. This is chapter 5, and it's got a great title. Scientism is the enemy of science. He says not only is it not science, it's not even a friend of science. It's its enemy. Whoa, how can that be? Well, he said, scientism rules out presuppositions of science. Uh, so science can't practice just in thin air. It's based on assumptions. 
And strong scientism rules out these presuppositions, these assumptions, because the nature of the presuppositions is philosophical. We're back to that again. It's philosophical. So here are some examples. Here are some presuppositions of science that science itself can't justify. In other words, it can't weigh it, it can't measure it, it can't uh, photograph it and all that kind of stuff. Number one, a world exists out there independent of mind, language, or theory. Isn't that a presupposition of science? Sure, that there's a world out there to investigate. He said people that buy into like Hinduism or Buddhism and some Eastern religions take that idea of an external world to be just an illusion. And some Western intellectuals buy into that. So I think that's fascinating. You have to believe that there's a world out there, but you can't prove it. I mean, it seems obvious to me, but you cannot prove it scientifically. But science works with that presupposition. So it, it shakes the uh, pillar of science in the area of uh, world existing out there. Here comes another presupposition. The nature of the world is orderly, especially its deep structure that lies under and beyond the manifest world of ordinary perception. See, science has to presuppose an orderly universe. If it wasn't orderly, you couldn't do science. You measure something, but it could be completely different next time. So that doesn't work. Um, all right, so let's let's continue here. I want to get through a lot of these. He points out that it's a matter of fact that the Christian view of God, especially in the Protestant Reformation, actually does provide an intellectual ground for assuming the world is orderly. So in other words, scientism doesn't get you there. Scientism says that's philosophy. You can't prove it. But Christianity says because there's a God and he's orderly, he's rational, he created us in his image. So we have... Uh, the ability to function because we believe the world is orderly. So that was a second presupposition of science. Um, let's see, what else does he talk about in here? That's in How about this one? Our sensory and cognitive faculties are reliable for gaining truth and knowledge of the world, and they're able to grasp the deep structure of the world that lies beyond just the sense-perceptible world. So think about that. Let me read that one more time. Our sensory and cognitive faculties are reliable, basically, to know about the world. We can trust our senses. We can trust our, our rational thinking. But, of course, if we're nothing but a evolutionary twist and an odd result of evolution, why should we trust our mind, right? But we say, no, we can trust it. But we can't measure, we can't test it. So, again, that's a presupposition of science. You have to have that. You have to believe that your faculties are reliable. But you don't get that from scientism. Scientism shoots that down. He says we, this is JP still talking about that last point. He says we have good reason to trust the information we get from our senses and our cognitive abilities if they're designed by an intelligent person. But if we believe that blind physical processes gave rise to our senses and our minds, then that undermines us, and we wouldn't trust our faculties. Yeah, no kidding. Um, let's pick up over here. Truth isn't needed for the survival-enhancing tasks of evolution. Error works just as well. So he says, evolutionary naturalism that's certified by scientism undercuts our confidence in our abilities to sense things and our abilities to think through things. He says, in order for science and certain other intellectual disciplines to be possible, we have to be able to use our reason to go beyond our senses, to get down in the deep structure and try to figure out 
theories about what's going on with gravity or whatever it happens to be. So if we're limited, he says, to evolutionary naturalism, that's what scientism advocates say, then we have strong grounds to distrust the use of our reason. So it's actually anti-reason. Here's another thing that science needs or depends on. Various types and values and oughts exist. Moral values, rational values, aesthetic values. And he says, you know, at its best, science can tell us what is the case, but can't tell us what ought to be the case. It describes, but it doesn't prescribe. And then finally, the last thing that undergirds science, one of the presuppositions is the laws of logic and mathematics exist. But you can't justify those, right? Uh, logic and mathematics are existing somewhere, but not in this world. You can't weigh them or measure them. And then his conclusion in this chapter, he says, don't miss the forest for the trees. And I like that comment. In other words, he wants to back up and kind of give us an overarching point to all of this he's been talking about. The conclusions of science can't be stronger than the presuppositions. He said there are many things that science presupposes, but it can't by itself justify those presuppositions. You can't take these presuppositions and do any kind of scientific test on them. He says you need philosophy to do that. And so as a result, the philosophy of scientism, which is not science, ends up being the enemy of science itself. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Well, a lot to chew on there, I know. But I think it's important to think about the uh, self-refuting nature of so much that we hear among people today. How about the comment somebody will say to a Christian, you're intolerant. Did, did you notice that statement is a statement showing intolerance? Uh, yeah, so just be aware, just be thinking about that. Somebody makes a statement, ask yourself, does that make sense? Uh, have they actually refuted that by doing the opposite of what they just said? And that happens over and over again. Okay, so once again, J.P. Moreland, uh, good person, great author, good thinker. The book Scientism and Secularism. All right, thanks. Talk to you later.